Well, good morning, E3. Good to be with you again. My name is Sam. I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak with you, be your guest speaker. Thanks to the staff for inviting me to join in on the fun of this series, What a Wonderful World. It's definitely not an easy series to teach, and the staff is doing a really great job with it. So what is so difficult about this series? Well, it's about the prophets, and the prophets are difficult to dissect in a way that's understandable and helpful to us a lot of times in the modern world. And on top of that, they're full of all these emotional, poetic language uh, that gets lost in translation as well, uh, sometimes with us. But they have lots of really important things to say uh, that matter to us in our modern world. And one thing is for sure, the human race has not changed, just like at the time of the prophets, and what mattered to them at that time still matters to us today. Now, when I accepted the opportunity to speak with you this Sunday, I knew that it was going to be the Sunday after the election. And although I wasn't thrilled about that idea, I was okay with it at the time. But as we've raced towards this election cycle and emotions have fever pitched beyond all reason, and then we've had all the things happen that have happened over the last week, uh, I started to get nervous, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. So there are two things you need to know about this sermon. First, I will be talking about the events of this past week and specifically uh, about the election. And I'll be doing that um, rather directly, um, I might add. So prepare for that. And then secondly, I'm writing this sermon before anyone knows the outcome or uh, the election day occurred and what has happened since then has, uh, has happened. So that's important because regardless of the election results or how delayed they may be uh, in this case, the words of the prophets speak sharply to all political leanings and causes, regardless of which side of the fence you may end up on. And the words that I'll say to you this morning are not geared towards any particular group of people. In fact, there's a good chance no one is going to like the position that this sermon puts any of us in. And if that's the case, then I've done my job conveying the truth about what the prophets say about the situation that we're presently in. So with that being said, we can launch in. And as usual, first thing, I've got a song for you this morning. It's from the first family of soul or R&B. So enjoy, give it a listen. Great. So hopefully you know that song. It's by the Five Stair Steps, which was the original family band. So Sly Stone got the family stone together, right? The Jackson Five did their thing. And even uh, Robert, uh, Robert Randolph and the family band have shown up in the last decade to kind of do the family band thing. But 
The Five Stair Steps, the Burke family, were the original R&B soul family band. I remember the first time that I heard that song, um, I was maybe five or six and I had skinned my knee or it upset my feelings. I remember I was crying, was a little kid. And I remember my mom leaning down and hugging me and singing the first line or two of that song to me. And uh, I remember it like it was yesterday because it's such a good pop song. It stuck in my head at that point. And uh, most people know that song recently from the Guardian of the Galaxy movies, right? And then before that, it was used in a movie in the early 90s called Boys in the Hood, where uh, Furious Styles introduces his son Trey to the song on their way back from going fishing that day. Now, that's some good fathering right there, uh, for sure. So my kids and I, uh, a couple of years ago, were going through a little bit of a rough time. And uh, so we made a playlist to kind of get it through some of our favorite songs that we could lean on and listen to. First song on the playlist... Ooh Child by the Five uh, Stair Steps. It's just a soothing song. It's like a lullaby for adults. And uh, it's got a pretty simple meaning. It says things, they suck now, but they won't forever. Some of the words are, someday we'll walk in the rays of the beautiful sun when the world is much brighter. So we'll come back to that song in just a little bit. So this morning, we're going to be talking about what a wonderful awakening. What a wonderful awakening. The idea of the prophet's calling us to wake up from our dependency on other things other than God. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea. It's one of the smaller prophetic look books, one of the, the minor prophets, as they call it. But boy, man, it is a scandalous book. It reads like a romance novel gone bad. I'll put it that way. Uh, and Hosea uses that story to speak to us today concerning some of the same things he spoke to Israel about, you know, millennia ago. So as the story goes, God asked Hosea to marry a woman whose name was Gomer. Now, Gomer is already known at this time and in that community as an unfaithful partner. She wasn't exactly the marrying type. And the Bible doesn't really go into her past, but the pattern is already well established in her life. So Hosea, on God's request, takes Gomer as his wife. So here's a little side note, little tip about life. If someone behaves in a particular way and you see it for the first time, don't assume that it's actually the first time. People establish patterns in their life. And there's a good chance that you're not seeing the first occurrence of someone's bad behavior. And Hosea is no dummy. He knows this. But God has asked him to do it, so he takes Gomer as his wife anyway, and he asks her to commit to marital monogamy, knowing there's a good chance that her pattern of behavior will continue. It's kind of like setting yourself up for failure. And remember, this is God's idea for the prophet to do this. So you can imagine how the story unravels. It just gets worse and worse as things go along. Hosea and Gomer have children, one of which uh, Hosea is not the father. And then Gomer runs off and becomes, ensla becomes enslaved by another man who was initially her lover who turns into an abusive person. And so Hosea has to go and spend money to buy back his wife from this other man to get her freedom in order to bring her home. Unbelievable story. Unbelievable. Hosea is begging his wife to wake up from her stupor. But Gomer has no gratitude for what Homer's done, his rescue. And like someone with Stockholm syndrome, she pines away for the man who's enslaved her. Now, can you imagine like the terrified woman on this screen right here? Can you imagine her 
kicking and screaming as Hosea, um, at Hosea as he struggles to try to wrestle her away from this person who's abused her so badly. Um, the public shame of that situation must have been absolutely horrifying. But remember, God was using this situation to speak to Israel as a whole. So here's the deal. God believed Israel was being unfaithful to him in a similar way that Gomer was being unfaithful to Homer. So let me share a story from the history books about a church to give you an idea of exactly why God was upset and what was causing the issue um, that made God use Hosea to speak out to the nation of Israel. So story time. In pre-modern Europe, the Middle Ages, they celebrated communion like we do. It's been going on a long time, right? And at that time in the Middle Ages, the livelihood of entire towns could be absolutely wiped out by one big storm or insect outbreak or pestilence where all the crops might be destroyed. So understandably, people were worried about that. Things weren't that predictable and they were concerned. They were scared. So parishioners took matters into their own hands. When the priests gave them the communion wafer, they pretended to eat it, but instead of doing so, they stuffed it in their pocket or they stuffed it inside their coat. And then they took the communion wafer home and the family gathered all their communion wafers together. They put it in a bowl, ground it up into powder, added a dash of herbal remedies and prayed some prayers they learned from a local shaman. And then they took that mixture, the body of Christ in communion, and they sprinkled it all over their crops outside. It's kind of like a protective magic, kind of a, a, like an, a charm or an ambulance against bad weather or disease. Now they did this every week after communion, every week. So eventually the priests hear about it and obviously it makes them upset, but rather than actually address the fears of the farmers and say, no, communion is representative of a God who protects you. They just said, you can't do that anymore. So what they did, they mandated that all communion wafers must be placed on the tongue at communion instead of in the hands. And that's how that tradition started. Kind of cool, huh? You know, History can be cool, right? So here's the important thing about that. The people in the Middle Ages were doing the exact thing that Hosea was trying to correct in ancient Israel. And in some ways, the same correction that we need today. So the prophets consistently harped on Israel's tendency to pledge their devotion to God, but then turn around and run off and chase after other rulers or after other gods or after other governments, whatever safety net that they thought they might need in case God couldn't come through. They would pretend to take communion in allegiance to God and then grind up the wafer and sprinkle it on their crops in some other, in some other way. So Hosea, using his own marital story, specifically condemns Israel from chasing that grass is greener political promises idea of neighboring nations. Now, the most common names in the book are Assyria, and Egypt. So let me read a little bit of the opening scripture again. You've already heard, but it says Israel is bird-brained. They're flighty, right? Mindless, clueless, first chirping after Egypt, then fluttering after Assyria. They turn, but not to me, says God. They turn here and there like a weather vane in the, way, uh, in the wind on top of a house. Back and forth, whichever way gives them the attention is the way that they turn. Whichever one makes them feel the most safe is the way that they turn. You see, 
People love to hedge their bets. They still do back then and even to today. We say, I think God will come through me, but you know, what if he doesn't? You know, I think I need a backup plan. plan. I mean, I can't, even, this, I can't even see this God. What if he can't come through for me? So we love our backup plans even today, don't we? We love to hedge our bets. We will leave a text invita- invitation on red and then wait around to see if something better comes up. People do that all the time. We treat life that way. We treat God that way. We heap on the accolades and pledge our commitment until things look like they're going a bit sideways. And then we begin to look for other bandwagon options. Maybe we can jump on the bandwagon for, right? We look to our other options and we say, hey, God, let me, let me get back to you on that. I'll see if I can work something out. I'll let you know how things go. We look to see whose grass might be greener. Now, we've been doing that a lot lately in this special season that we're in. The last few months, we've been listening to people on TV who tell us they have our best interest at heart based on how they will lead our country, what they believe in, what they'll give us, what they'll take away. And we, um, we, we bite the bait here, hook, line, and sinker. We over-identify with these talking heads. And we do it for two reasons. The first reason is they strike at our security and they make us fear the future. Whatever whatever your concern may be, whatever your national agenda may be, if they can strike fear into your heart about that, then they can gain your allegiance through that. Okay. And then secondly, they encourage all of us to identify with them by abdicating our identity for their own so that we live through their ideas. Their fears are now our fears. Their successes and victories are now our successes and victories. And we live vicariously through the victory or through their defeat. We find our Assyria or we find our Egypt and we dig in and we fight to the death usually losing friends in the process over someone else's convictions, things that really are not even our own uh, agenda, things that don't really impact us on a daily basis. And we do this every election cycle. But here's the truth of what Hosea and all the prophets for that matter are saying. When we allow governments and institutions and rulers and kings, etc., whatever that may be, to be our safety net then we set ourselves up for bondage, spiritual, emotional, physical, intellectual, and yes, political, all the above. Israel, like Hosea's wife, Gomer, ran to the other nations that Israel believed would protect her. Now, and if you think about this, this is is not the smartest thing that was ever done. For example, Assyria was the most brutal empire in the world at that time, on the entire planet. They were the most violent, most brutal group of individuals on the whole planet. And sure enough, later, they captured Israel and made them into a slave state. They did exactly what they did with everyone else because the patterns had already been established, right? And Egypt, y'all, Who did God deliver the Israelites from in the book of Exodus? Egypt. It wasn't that long ago, right? So here you have a loving God 
desperately trying to protect Israel from her own infatuation with the Assyrian abusive bad boy and the Egyptian old flame that's trying to strike up a new conversation. Hosea calls Israel deceived and senseless, flighty, bird-brained, for flirting with plan B in case plan A, God, doesn't work out. Now listen to me on this. This is important. We often mistake God's love and protection for us as trying to control us. I'm going to say that again. We often mistake God's love and protection for us with God trying to control us. That's because we're broken. And because we control things, we assume that God wants to control us because that's the way we're built. And we also mistake the control of others and the abusive behavior of others as love and protection as well. Just like Gomer. It's because we're broken because we're sinners, because we have trouble understanding. And in this election season, we even do something even more insidious than that. Now, I'm about to step on some more toes. If that hasn't happened yet, your turn's coming, right? Okay. But I promise to make this one equal opportunity, uh, miserable experience for all of you guys. Okay. So in times like this, we like to infuse national and political agendas into what we believe to be God's agenda. We co-opt God's ideas for a better world, and then we place them inside the man-made vehicle of human government. It's an insidious thing, and it never works. It never has worked throughout all of history. It never will work in the future. Governments, nonprofit programming, unions, associations, coalitions, caucuses, and the like are not meant to carry out the will of God. Are those, can those things be good things? Absolutely. I'm involved in some of those things. But they're never meant to carry out the will of God. We are. The church. We're meant to carry out the will of God. If those things assist along the way, all the better. But front and center of our allegiance should be to the, the love and grace of God, the agenda of God, and then everything else after that. And when we place God's agenda inside government, we're setting ourselves up for horrible failure. When we place our faith in systems of government, we become enmeshed in that government. We can't tell ourselves apart from the agenda of other people who are telling us what to believe. And we become deceived. And uh, we, we lose the ability to think rationally about who loves us, who cares for us, who protects us, and who doesn't. The same governments that oppress us, somehow we think that they're going to remedy our oppression. Why would we look to our oppressor to bring us freedom? Yet we do that, don't we? I know you're doing this to me, but come save me from it. Only God can bring that freedom to you. Only God can bring that freedom to your family. Only God can bring that freedom to our world. Like Hosea says, we've become deceived and senseless while carrying out the agenda of Assyria and Egypt of our day. We've been co-opted. And all the while we cloak it in the rhetoric of, uh, rhetoric of godly progress. 
The prophets say otherwise. They say that any alliance on the safety net we have chosen is like a wanton lover beguiled by the charm of a fling who ultimately then places us in bondage and won't let us go. It's like someone who ignores the true sense of the communion wafer and what it represents, that union with God, and decides to worship what they have that they can hold on to. And then they grind it up and they sprinkle it all over the things that they think uh, they need uh, to protection from. Now, I want to remind you guys again at this point that I wrote this sermon before, before election day and everything that's happened since then, okay? I was cringing at my desk as I wrote all of this that you're hearing because, not because it isn't true, Hosea tells us that it's true, but because it's so descriptive of where we are as a nation right now. It's only in the aftermath of an election cycle and, and all the, just the, the horrible minutiae and disappointment that occurs for so many people that we can actually see just how much trust we have misplaced in the systems of government around us. How do you know that that's the case? Well, I don't feel that way. Well, here's the litmus test. Ready? So once again, writing this, I don't know who won or didn't win or you know, whatever the case may be. So here's the question. Are you depressed and miserable about the outcome of this election? If the answer is yes, then you are betting on Assyria and Egypt instead of God. Here's the other question, other side of the coin. Are you ecstatic and feel like you defeated uh, a formidable energy, uh, enemy in this election? Are you happy, elated about the results? Newsflash, you're just as bad. <laughs> you're betting on Egypt and Assyria too. You fell for that pickup line, didn't you? You did. You bought it, hook, line, and sinker. I cannot tell you how grieved I have been to watch people lose all sense of decorum in the fight to make Jesus the poster boy of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. He belongs to neither it's been heartbreaking. God is not government. God is not government. And more importantly, government is not God. It's time for us to wake up, like Hosea says. Okay, that was pretty heavy. You guys made it through the worst of it. Good job. <laughs> Almost done. Okay, back to our song by the five stair steps. Best part of that song is the last verse, okay? So at the beginning, it says, ooh, child, things are going to get better someday. And then it describes what someday looks like, right? Someday, in the future, things are going to get better, right? At the end of the song, rather than say someday, they sing, things are going to get better right now, right now, right now in this moment. Now, there's a lesson in there that the Burke family had already figured out, Despite the rise and fall of governments, leaders, wars, peace treaties, pandemics, Supreme Court justices, protests, and the like, whatever you're upset about, the only thing worth fully committing to is the person of Jesus Christ and God's work of love in this world. No political party, no politician of the past, and no politician making promises in the future has the ability to imitate 
what God does in the human heart. And that's where change really occurs. Not through government programs, not through legislation, not through law, but in the heart, in the heart. We need to shake off the haze of our post-election hangover, and we need to truly awaken to God and turn our attention back to Him. See, regardless of who has or who hasn't won, God is still God and we're still His people. And that's a platitude people say, usually when their person has lost. That's also when someone's person has won. Either way, God is still God. And Hosea is calling us to stop flirting with the idea that the events of this past week somehow changed the reality of who God is and what being a radical disciple of Jesus means. Just think of God singing to you, oh child, things are going to get easier. They will, they will. Not someday when we place our faith in Jesus at the core of who we are. It's not someday, it's right now. Amen.